Hey everyone, welcome to today's live stream. Uh, this is 4.0 Solutions. I'm your host, Zach Scriven. Uh, and I'm here with Walker Reynolds, architect, uh, Chief Solutions Architect and uh, founder of 4.0 Solutions. How are you doing today? Hala, I'm blessed. Thank you. Welcome everybody joining in the chat. Uh, Mario, Cheryl, welcome. John, welcome. All right, so Pranjit, welcome. All right, so yeah, uh, what are we going to talk about this week, Walker? We go live every week, Tuesday at noon central. You know, we've been doing this for like over a year now. Uh, you can find us on the 4.0 Solutions podcast. We're going over use case number five. We did this little mini series. You can listen to the last episodes over the last couple of weeks. We did use cases one through four. Today, were you doing use case number five? What is it? Uh, this week, it's Tesla, man. It's uh, the use cases. Tesla is a data company. And while we're going to focus less on Tesla's implementation, we're going to focus more on Tesla's results. So um, we're also going to have a conversation about uh, agility and velocity, um, a little nugget on, I think, uh, a concept that we don't focus enough on in our industry, and that is our working velocity when we are working on solutions. <laughs> and, then, um, and then we're going to answer any questions that pop up. Yeah, someone on LinkedIn the other day said, hey, you know, all programmers, like it takes twice as long to do something that they say it would take. And I'm like, that's because their velocity is 50%. Right. We had a, did a, a training. I've been doing um, a weekly training session with our engineers because we, we've added, I don't know how many people. I, I think we added five new engineers since January or whatever. And the team's gotten pretty big. And so I've been doing a weekly session on Friday mornings. And um, the uh, last week I did uh, agile project management, but we had a long discussion about velocity. And I want to talk about that today in the live stream. So, but before we get to that, uh, a couple of announcements I want to get to. Um, is this thing on Rick Bellotta? Yes, Rick, it's on. Um, Welcome, Rick. IoT happy hour. For those of you that are in the Dallas area, I've been talking about this last couple of weeks. I'm going to be giving a keynote address, um, digital transformations, a strategy at the IoT happy hour in Richardson with the IoT Texas team. So uh, Zach will include the meetup link if you guys want to come and enjoy. Um, what are you going to be talking about? Uh, I'm going to be doing digital transformations, a strategy. I'll be speaking for about an hour. Um, I, I did a keynote address this morning. I recorded a keynote address this morning for uh, the tech data. Uh, is it manufacturing university, right? The manufacturing university days or whatever. I did the keynote last year, um, which was really like, what is manufacturing? What is digital transformation? I, I shot the keynote this morning for this year's um, event. And it is the how of digital transformation. I, I went into a use case pretty deeply. I'm going to be doing something similar at the IoT happy hour, talking about digital transformation as a strategy. I think a lot of people go into digital transformation initiatives not really understanding what it is. And I mean, and for, right. years, and for years, I mean, what are we, what are we three, four years into the content, right? Um, I, I've probably given this talk, you know, well over 200 times easily. And, um, and I'll be giving a similar talk, but with a different twist on on Thursday. Um, but anyway, if you if you're in the Dallas area, come on out. We're gonna our whole team will be there, and uh, I'm gonna buy a round of drinks for everybody who who shows up. So um, it'll be at the Spring Hill Suites at uh, 18180 Highland Springs uh, in Dallas um, at six o'clock this Thursday. Dude, if my Tesla wasn't in the shop getting fixed, I would probably. I'd probably drive it out there and, 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 you know, check it out. Um, well, you could jump on a plane, come check it out. <laughs> oh yeah. That's actually an, also an option too. Oh, oh, let's, Hey, let's go over clarify real quick. Let's go yeah, over. Let's clarify. Let's clarify the clarify piece. Yes. Go ahead. Oh yeah. Here. So, um, I actually want to hear what your thoughts are on it because, you know, I've been talking about clarify, you know, we've, we've been evaluating their solution for about a quarter now. And, uh, you know, it's basically cloud hosted time series data 
with a focus on like unlocking potential in that time series data uh, with around collaboration, social collaboration, commenting and notifications, and then also like native uh, data science tools. Like, so you can open up your time series data in a Python Jupyter notebook real easily and just start doing uh, native data science. So we like it because it plugs straight into the UNS. In fact, they just released their Sparkplug B connector and I was working with their uh, founder on that. And like within two days, they already had it updated and released. So um, yeah, we just like that they're, you know, they're working very quickly and agile and then they have that same mindset, right? There's an alignment of our business values. You know, we're mission-driven company. We want to save and create middle-class jobs, you know? And so we, we like partnered, partnered with Clarify and uh, I think there's already been like 40 or 50 people that have signed up using the link below. They get like a free Clarify account, special account just for being a member of the 4.0 Solutions community. It doesn't cost you anything extra, but it does help support the channel. So check it out. If you haven't already, click the link in the description, sign up for Clarify. You get 40 free signals of time series data and four free user accounts to basically do whatever you want with. You know, that could be your small data science team or a couple of PLC engineers that want to, you know, start just logging some data to the cloud. Definitely take a look at Clarify for that. So, so what, here, are you, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I, I we talked about this last week, but let me, let, so those those of you who wanted the technical case, you know, why why should I give uh, Clarify a, a shot, right? Um, let, let me say this. Let me, the organizations who sponsor our channel um, are only organizations that we allow to sponsor us. So, uh I'm I've always been very like I you know I watch Ben Shapiro's show every day and and Ben Shapiro you'll notice his his show like his if you guys watch him he it's sponsored by Easy VPN right and he always does this commercial in the beginning and I watch other you know, um YouTube channels and they they'll they'll do a, a pretty similar thing right they'll have a sponsor of the show they'll kind of they never talk about like it mean it's it's sort of a it's an unorganic thing you know so when it, it it's it's almost like whoever we could get to sponsor us we're going to go ahead and have them sponsor us you know and and i'm i'm not saying that ben shapiro is not a values based guy i'm sure he is but the um our approach when it comes to sponsorship is we only want companies that we actually use their stuff and we actually believe in to be of the channel um, so from a technical perspective, here's why clarify matters. Okay. You know, we did this use case, uh, we, we did a project for a soda manufacturer or so, um, in Western Europe last year. And it was a, it was a machine learning data science use case. They, they hired us. They already had a, a historian. They had two historians. They already had two historians. Um, they had the ignition platform. Um, they had lots of disparate data sources. They were working with Azure IoT. They were using, trying to use time series insights in the cloud. And what they wanted to do, they had a specific machine learning use case. Okay. And that machine learning use case was we want to consume um, historical data across many of our batch processes. I can't remember if these were the mixing tanks. I think they, they may have been. Matt uh, could email me or message me and let me know if I'm right on which part of the process it was. But it was a batch process. What they wanted to do was they wanted to use machine learning okay, to inform the operator on um, speed adjustments on the mixer uh, and I think agitation adjustments. So predict that the current set point that you're using for speed and or agitation is going to lead to a bad outcome and make an adjustment, okay? It took, it took months just to connect, collect the data that they had, normalize the data before the data scientists could ever start working with that data at all, okay? So there were many, there were many hoops we had to jump through, okay? Which, well, what we did was we started by connecting to the, the historian, I think they were using a Wonderware historian. They may have been using OSI Pi. I can't remember which one it was, but they were using either Wonderware or OSI Pi. They wanted to get the data into Time Series Insights. If you guys have never worked with Azure IoT, this is one of my biggest complaints about TSI. 
the Time Series Insight solution. If you want to stream data, if you want to use Time Series Insights for Time Series data, and you don't want to go through the Azure IoT Hub, then what you have to do is build like a manual header for each data point that that is a, it's a custom header that's specific to Azure TSI, and it's a pain in the ass, and and it basically made that solution problematic. I had not been introduced to Clarify before we did this use case. And had we been introduced to Clarify, all of the work that we had done, we would have we would have been able to strip out about 60% of the engineering time that we put into just getting the data normalized. That is and what is normalized data? If I'm pulling data from many different sources, okay, whether those sources are sensors or whether they're time series databases, doesn't matter what it is. If I'm pulling data from many different sources, the first thing I have to do if I want to find patterns in data is I have to normalize it. And I've used this example before. Let's say I've got, I want to find a correlation between a, a temperature sensor and a quality calculation. Okay. Temperature sensor and a quality calculation. That temperature sensor is changes 60 times per second. And the quality calculation gets calculated every 60 seconds. Okay. If I want to find a pattern between the two, the first thing I have to do is break up that quality calculation, which gets changed, which gets calculated every 60 seconds, into the same number of events that the, the temperature sensor has. So if I look at 60 seconds times 60 minutes is 3,600 events for the for the uh, um, temperature sensor. I have 3,600 events for the temperature sensor for every for every one. Uh, quality calculation. No, the normalization of the data is I have to then turn the quality calculation into 3,600 events so that for every temperature calculation I have, I have one quality calculation. That's called Got normalization. It. Got it. Clarify. And these are technical things that we, we don't talk about in this content, the stuff that's on YouTube very often, because our audience is not just technical consumers. Okay. The engineers on here, you know, the Rick Bellatas of the world, the Michael Browns, the um, Mario Ishigawa's, the Dave Schultz's, the the um, the Matt Paris's. There, there are a lot of great engineers who watch the live stream. They understand what I'm talking about right now, right? They get it. But um, you know, Rick, let's use Rick Schoonover for example. Rick Schoonover is a he's in business development with Tatsoft. He has technical capability, but Rick doesn't build. He doesn't build solutions. So this is never a use case he's ever going to run into at a granular level because he doesn't write linear regressions. He doesn't do data science. Our audience needs our what we communicate needs to be work for everybody. So generally in our YouTube content, we don't get into the deep technical details. That's what mastermind and mentorship is for. Right. But when we talk about but when we talk about clarify, why what is the real value to you for clarify? Think of it as the time series aggregator and analysis tool you put on top of all your time series databases that and plug directly into the unified namespace so that it can do native normalization of the time series data. That is, align up all those events so there's a one-to-one -one relationship between every transition and consume the already normalized data from a unified namespace. That's the, the easiest way I can explain it yeah. as to why I'm so high on the platform. <clears throat> Well, I, I like their, you know, I've been working a lot with Henry with, you know, their chief commercial officer who's building out their partner program. So if you're an integrator in our community, definitely want to check out Clarify because they have a partner, a really awesome partner program that you can get set up with similar to what we're set up with. But um, I want to talk about the evolution of the integration because like, you know, they originally have an MQTT publisher and, you know, I was getting Ignition connected to Clarify because I know a lot of our audience is going to want to connect Ignition or you know, factory studio uh, frameworks to clarify, how would they go about doing that? Well, they have an MQTT uh, endpoint. And so I was connecting to the endpoint. The way that it was accepting payloads was just simply, uh, there was a specific data payload topic and uh, format that you would have to publish time series data into, and you could even store multiple events in one payload. Uh, but that wasn't gonna work with you know, the, the ignition transmitter module, for example. Um, so I wanted to, so I was working with them and initially I got connected like just via HTTP script and Python, right? I just connected, created the payload and sent it. But then I was like, all right, well, let's work with them to get this supporting Sparkplug B. So 
within like uh, within two days, they got their Sparkplug B support. So that was kind of like the level two integration. And then a level three integration, which is what they're working on now, um, is like a native, native to the platform. So like if imagine if an ignition you could collect, you, when you're storing time series data, you could select clarify as a native history provider for that platform or likewise, similar to what Canary, uh, has worked done with Tatsoft is like, they're a native historian provider for their platform. So that's what they're working on right now is, you know, that native uh, connection. If you don't want to use the spark plug B publishing. So. You know, pretty, pretty great example of great working with them and, and very quick to deliver that feature. So, um, you know, and that's why I was, like, if you're building a software out there, you know, you want to think about these things, the user experience of connecting your software to a unified namespace. And that's like, we, we want companies to get that integration right. You know, so, let's talk about this. I want to Rick Schooner <laughs> said, hey, great. My second time watching live and I'm Walker's example of simple minded. <laughs> on the head. All right. So let me say this. Rick. Uh, Obviously, Rick is tongue in cheek there. Um, and I was definitely not calling him simple minded. Let's say this. We we refer to all people, all people, potential audience members in two terms, non-technical and technical. And our education is in both of those formats as well, by the way. Okay, so the our educational model focuses on the non-technical training, right? Everyone needs to go through these core foundational principles, but in a non-technical way. And then if I'm a non-technical person, my education ends at the foundational principles. Okay. But if I'm a technical person, person, my education continues. Okay. The more technical I am, the longer my education continues. The deeper I get into the education, you know, we've, we've, we've built our educational model very similar to the way that you, the SATs operate. Okay. Uh, if, I don't know if you guys ever took the SATs, but when you take the SAT, if you went to college, you should have, but if you've taken the SATs, a standardized, um, test, the deeper you get into the test, the harder the questions get. And so you should get to a point where you can't answer anymore. Okay. That's how the tests are designed. Our educational model is the exact same way. Mm. We, the, the deeper you get there, you'll get to a point where, hey, I am now learning stuff that's beyond, you know, I'm, I'm at my ceiling. The people, who go, the people who go deeper and deeper and deeper into the education are the ones who, can, are, are, who are doing the most advanced solutions. Just remember, in every video we shoot, especially when we're on YouTube, we are, our, our content on YouTube is meant for the non-technical person. And if we do talk about technical stuff, we're just touching on it. Because if, I, if we were to just shoot YouTube content where we're talking about the technical details, depending upon how technical we get, the smaller the audience gets. Right. Right. And, and, and obviously, we spend a lot of money to produce this content. My board is never going to allow me to, where it's not going to allow us to spend tens of thousands of dollars a month. Um, I mean, we're spending over $20,000 a month now, I think, producing content on this kind of, uh, and, they're never going to let us spend that kind of money for a hundred views. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> so, anyway. Uh, Wait, let's touch on the, did we touch on the mastermind? Uh, no, the, we're doing a, so we had great. Uh, I, hold on. I want to, you can come back to it in a second. I want to, I want to talk about something real quick. That I think right. it's, this is a, a non-technical discussion that I think everyone needs to understand. Very important concept. Digital transformation. We talk about digital transformation. This is part of my keynote from this morning for Tech Data. When I'm talking to non-technical people who don't do any of this stuff at all, I have to I have to come up with illustrations to help them understand why digital transformation matters. Okay. And this will really go, hopefully Jeff Rankin and students are watching because this will really help them. Digital transformation and the fourth industrial revolution is all about helping manufacturers um, and large industry become digital data companies, okay? What does that mean, right? What does that mean? And I, I, I use this example in the tech data keynote this morning. Uh, think about how legacy manufacturers solve problems, okay? Uh, they... The legacy manufacturer hopes 
that a smart person that they've got working for them is going to be able to find a pattern accidentally through osmosis and then fix it. Here's a really good example. You know, we had this flexible man, uh, flexible packaging customer, okay? Um, it, it's one of the use cases we've gone over. And, and at some point, some engineer came up with, realized, hey, man, I noticed that in the month of August, in July and August, when it's the hottest in our plant, we have the worst quality number for on our printing presses. So when we're printing on these on this flexible material and laminating this flexible material for food and beverage packaging, in the months of July and August, our, there is a direct correlation between the month of July and August and how much waste we're producing on these presses. That engineer had to be there like 10 years, okay? And remember that every August and July and August, the the waste number was going up because they were collecting it on paper, putting it in a spreadsheet, right? That guy needed to be there 10 years to go, oh, you know what? I think there might be a correlation between the, the temperature in the facility or the relative humidity in the facility and waste coming off the press. That's what a legacy company does. You know what a digital company does? A digital company connects to all the smart things in the business, collects every single digital transition in the business, and then uses software to find those patterns for you, okay? Because think about it. You can't fix a problem you're not aware of. So digital transformation is all about connecting to the data all over your business, which is the most valuable commodity you have, and translating that into information, okay? Uh, Tomas Vidonja says, does it mean the legacy manufacturer company legacy manufacturing company doesn't need those smart engineers anymore? Of course not. That's absurd. Right? <laughs> I mean, that it's absolutely absurd. Human beings aren't good at finding patterns. In fact, human beings suck at it. You want to know how we know that? Because the second you put in a digital MES system, the second you start calculating OEE digitally, the second you, you find the patterns in the data and you show those patterns to human beings, the human beings take the pattern that was recognized and they fix something. Human beings are great at that. That's the analysis component. Human beings are great at analyzing data and innovating. Human beings are not good at collecting data and finding the patterns. Okay. You need those smart engineers to take the big long list of patterns that the software found and solve the problems. And that's where job growth comes from, by the way. We don't see... We don't see, um, our customers don't have, they don't end up with fewer employees. What they do is they end up with far more capacity and they move employees into upper level positions to analyze data. That's what they do. There's no customer that we work with who keeps, who's, who, has ex, who has the same amount of capacity three years after we started with them and fewer employees. What they have is more capacity and more employees. That's what they have. And, and how can the market afford to sustain that? Well, the answer is the consumers of their goods can afford to buy more of the capacity because it costs less, because they're more efficient, right? It's an intellectual shortcut to make the argument that automation um, creates fewer positions. It does not. Now you can create fewer positions with automation, but only if you're doing it wrong. <laughs> All right. It, only if you're spending, if only if you're not getting, um, you're only, you're not having your cost in each iteration. Only if you're not using a single source of truth for data and information. And only if you're not trying to transform all data into information to drive efficiency in the business. But yes, it's a good common question, Tomas. But no, it does not mean that the legacy manufacturer doesn't have a need for those smart engineers. They have a need for those smart engineers to stop looking for the patterns and start consuming the patterns. Okay. Um, and then one last thing I want to talk about is the th this process of digital transformation. What does it look like? 
okay, for the non-technical person, right? All manufacturers who, who embark on this journey, they're legacy manufacturers. That means they've been around before two, the year 2000. They got legacy infrastructure. They got smart stuff all over their business that they're doing nothing with, okay? Um, hold on, I got to answer Zach's thing so that I can then see the chat again. <laughs> um, yeah, we asked the community, what year did you subscribe to the 4.0 channel? Are you an OG um, or more recently did you subscribe? Please answer the poll. Yeah. Um, the these Digital transformation happens in two huge giant steps for manufacturers. Number one, step one is becoming the smart business. We've talked about this before, right? This is a process that takes three to five years. Nearly all of you who are uh, watching this this live stream, who listen to the podcast every week, who consume our content or a member of our educational products, you guys are learning the step one stuff, okay? And most of the manufacturers out there are in step one. The biggest step takes three to five years. And it's this, it's connecting to all the smart stuff. It's collecting all the data. It's storing all the data. Then it's analyzing and visualizing that data. This is the single pane of glass. This is the um, turning data into information to help us drive better decision-making. And then the last four steps are finding patterns in the raw data, predicting outcomes from the raw data and past events, reporting those likely outcomes, and then solving those problems. That is becoming a smart business, okay? And that process takes three to five years. And the strategy we teach around the unified namespace, technology-driven, um, edge-driven, report-by-exception, lightweight, open architecture, is all in service of those steps, okay? Yeah. Connect, connect, collect, store, analyze, visualize, find patterns, predict, report, solve. Mm. You, once you're doing that at scale, you are now a smart business. You are a smart business whose primary commodity is data. It's not the things you manufacture. Okay. Yeah. And what do you and what do you do once you become a smart business? You now plug into a digital supply chain made up of other smart businesses. Go ahead, Zach. Well, think about you know Tesla recently stopped shipping their new vehicles with the mobile power connector, and they made that decision with data. They they knew that the usage statistics were low. How do they know that? Well, because they're collecting the, you know, the, that information of how you're charging, whether you're charging at home or whether you're charging at a mobile connector or whether you're supercharging. That's how it shows me on my app, my charging history. It's blue if it's home or it's red if it's supercharging. So Tesla, Tesla they realized didn't. we're shipping a $400 connector with every car and only you know a few percentage of the people use it. So let's make and, it an upsell. And guess who uses it? Here's the, the other people. thing they know. No, get, get, here, here's, here's what the cars told Tesla. Here's what they know by being connected to the cars. It's people who drive 30 miles a day or less. Not Wait, only that, that, yes, it's only the people. Otherwise, you can't use it unless you're unless you get the people. It's only the people who drive 30 miles a day or less use the mobile chargers. So for those of you that don't know, for those of you that don't know, the Tesla Teslas, all new Teslas used to come with like a bag that had a had a mobile charger in it, a long cable that plugs in and you could plug it into your, your outlet and it would charge like three miles per hour. So it would give you three miles of charge per hour. So it really, really slow as opposed to if you go to yeah, slow, if, if you go to a supercharger, the supercharger, you'll get 300 miles of charge in 30 minutes. Now you okay? can get the 220 volt adapter, which is up to 50 amps. That should give you about 30 miles of charge which is almost as much as the, the wall connector. You can get like a wall connector at home. Anybody, anybody who's doing that is getting the wall connector. The wall connector is nice, I will say. So, <laughs> I get that. so what, but what Tesla determined, just by, they, didn't, they didn't pull the users. Mm -hmm. they, didn't, they, didn't send out, they didn't send out a postcard asking people to report, self-report how much they were using it. What they did was they collected... That they collect the data directly from the vehicle. They know exactly how often that, that charger is being used. They know all the behaviors of the people who use it. They know how much you drive. They were able to pivot the data however they wanted. And then they were able to make an informed decision that we could go ahead. There's no reason for us to include this $400 cable with every new car. You, you want to hear a crazy story? Yep. 
All right. So I was driving, this is right before I crashed my Tesla into the deer or my friend Albert who was driving at the time. Cause it was like, we're driving from Arizona to Utah and, uh, Albert was driving like really fast. He must've been going 80, 90 miles an hour. I think I was like taking a nap. And so he, he basically drained all the battery. We, we, we would have had plenty of battery to make it, but he ended up getting to the point where we're running low. Cause the faster you go, the more the resist wind resistance is. And the more you drive, like accelerating fast. So the car actively told me to adjust my speed in order to make, make it to the next supercharger. And it was like, at first say, all right, you don't go faster than 75. And then it's all right now don't go faster than 65. And then if you didn't listen to that, then it would say, you know, don't go faster than 50, but eventually you, you know, you, if you adjusted your speed it, in real time, it would adjust your, your, your usage and, and you would make it, you know, you could make it there on like one or 2% and we were fine. So if you ever have range anxiety, I mean, the car's actively, you know, a gas car doesn't have that. You're like, oh, I'm, I'm on E. How much more do I have? I don't know. I don't really know. You know, <laughs> like this is actively telling you in real time whether or not you'll make it, you know, your real time range, basically. So that was pretty cool. Let me and I, let's go ahead and let's do the use case right now. And then I'll do it in a different order. I had been doing the use case at the very end, but let's do it right now. We're going to talk about Tesla. OK, we're going to talk about Tesla at a little higher level. Um for a couple of like uh, like legal reasons, I have to. So so, um, the the other day I was on Twitter. I'm back on Twitter. For those of you who don't know, I'm very happy to be back on Twitter. It's my favorite social media platform. Shout out to Elon Musk for saving saving Twitter. Um, Shannon Looper, uh, one of the first historians we installed was at a balloon factory. We found that day to night ambient temp was affecting quality, even though they were sure it wasn't. Um. Yes, that is a great story, Shannon. One of the, um, uh, we we talk about this all the time. Win the results war, don't fight theoretical battles. Okay, um, have the data on your side. Let me think about it. You don't even need to pay for clarify. You don't need to go justify. You can get a free account, start doing a proof of concept, and prove. You know, like there's no barrier of entry. I mean, it's these technologies are super affordable. So there was this, I was on Twitter the other day, um, and this guy, Josh Marshall, Marshall, um, he, uh, he posted, he tweeted, is it conceivable that Tesla's stock value might be inflated? Okay. And what he did was he showed a chart from October of 2021. You guys can Google this chart if you want to. Guy's name's Josh Marshall. Uh, it's Ash at Josh TPM. He's a blue checker. Um, is it conceivable that Tesla's stock value might be inflated? This is our use case. So I'm going to talk about the use case within the concept of this chart he posted. And it showed that the value capital, uh, the market cap for Tesla in October of 2021 was $1.01 trillion. Okay. So that is if you took the total number of shares of stock, multiplied it by what the stock was trading at, the total value of that market was a trillion dollars. And in that chart, he has the next 10 largest auto manufacturers combined. Okay. And they all equaled a trillion dollars. So Toyota, Volkswagen, BYD, Daimler, GM, BMW, Ford, Stellantis, Honda, and SIAC, SAIC, if you add their market cap up, they're, they're a trillion dollars. Okay. And his argument, his premise is, is it conceivable that Tesla's stock value might be inflated? And the answer is no. Josh Mark. Do you own Tesla stock? I, I own Tesla stock. I, I do own Tesla stock, yes. All right. Um, <laughs> Josh, Josh Marshall, here's the challenge. I'm sure Josh Marshall's a really smart guy. He's an executive at some, I don't know what company. Hold on a second. Let me see what he does. He is at the, um, he used to be a historian, a Polk Award winner, Talking Points Memo, right? So he's a writer. Obviously educated guy. He's also a fucking idiot. He he's he's he is an absolute he and when I say idiot, I mean he's ignorant. No, Tesla stock is not inflated. It is horribly undervalued. Anybody who knows the understand the the value of the data that Tesla is collecting, okay, as a fully integrated digital company, understands that Tesla is probably they're they're absolutely going to be the first two trillion dollar company, and there are many analysts who understand the technology who are arguing that Tesla will be a five 
trillion dollar company. I think it's going to be 10 this decade in less than 10 years. Okay. 5 trillion. Yeah. I think 2026, it could be 5 trillion. So let's go back. How is it, you know, so people will say, Hey Walker, you know, if Josh Marshall came on here and said, Hey, is it conceivable that Tesla stock might be inflated? The answer is fuck. No, <laughs> it is way undervalued. Okay. And here's why here. It's an easy case to make it very easy case to make. My response to his tweet, I quoted it. I just said, hey, listen, this is a common misconception in the world for non-technical people, okay? You think Tesla is a car manufacturer, like Toyota, Volkswagen, BYD, Daimler, GM, BMW, Ford, Stellantis, Honda, and SAIC. You are wrong. Tesla is not a car manufacturer. They are a data company who manufactures cars, okay? They manufacture factories too right and the factory is the product right the gigafactory the gigafactory wasn't built to manufacture cars it was built to sustain humanity it cost 20 percent of the original gigafactory exactly tesla has their cost every iteration <laughs> because they are a wholly digital company and let's let's make the let's make the argument what does that actually mean okay what tesla is fully integrated from customer. So that is from the people who drive their cars, the products that they have, e even if uh, um, from customer all the way up through their manufacturing operations, all the way up to their suppliers. Okay. So for example, St. Cobain manufactures the glass that goes only on the driver's side, only on the, the passenger doors. The other glass is not manufactured by Saint-Cobain, okay? The side glass is manufactured by Saint-Cobain. Saint-Cobain is digitally integrated. The suppliers who make the glass from Saint-Cobain are fully integrated into Tesla's digital supply chain. It's not phone calls right. to find out status of order. It's not email to find status of order. It is not phone calls to make more orders. It is... St. Cobain responding to production demand and a current demand within the Tesla Gigafactories at any given time. Their, their production ramps up and down as the business reality within the Tesla facilities change automatically, dynamically. Okay. Yeah. But let's talk about so they're a fully integrated business. Uh, Toyota was the pioneer in this. Toyota's manufacturing equipment and techniques were a huge competitive advantage. Yes. Te Toyota has a, a thing called, oh man, I can't remember the name of it. It begins with an A, ACS, ALS, ASL, ACL. It is basically their production control system, Toyota does. And, and, it, and it's all deployed from, from Japan globally each day. What, what Tesla's mistake was, or Toyota's mistake was, Toyota, Toyota deploys daily, not in real time. They control day by day. TP, uh, no, that's Toyota production system. Yeah, you're not talking about Toyota production system. Yeah, I'm not. The Toyota production system is how is is the manufacturing execution system. Toyota Toyota production system is how they execute manufacturing. It's not the MES system, but it's how they execute the manufacturing. What I'm talking about is their ERP system that deploys production orders. It stores. Uh, does all the serialization, track and trace. It uh, does all the procurement. It's like a ACL, ALS, ALC, something like that. Problem is the tra it's, it transacts once, you know, every 24 hours. It's not in real time. And they never updated it to be real time. So the changes on the plant floor in real time have no impact. They can't, the, the, they don't respond from that ERP layer at Toyota, right? So, Tesla is a real-time company, but let, let's. What, Tesla is a data company, and they understand the most valuable thing, the most valuable commodity they have is data. And they couldn't have, they can't be a data company unless they had already taken that first huge step, which I had gone through, right? Connect, collect, store, um, analyze, visualize, et cetera. Tesla right now, and this is the part that blows everyone's mind when I explain it. Tesla right now collects data not just about um road conditions or um um 
you know, what roads exist, right, to store that data in for full self-driving. Tesla is able to analyze data to make their cars safer and to make people better drivers, okay? Every time there's an accident, Tesla has access to the driver's behavior, the drivers around them, their behavior, the conditions of the road, the weather conditions, the uh, lighting, um, all the variables that go into people dying on the road. Right now, if you buy a Tesla, if you buy if you buy a Tesla and you get Tesla insurance, okay, I have Tesla insurance. Tesla insurance costs like one fifth what it costs to go to some other insurance company. If you try to get insurance from a different insurance company, not Tesla insurance, you are going to pay 2X, 3X, 4X, 5X for your insurance. You want to know why? Because those insurance companies don't have access to the data Tesla does. Tesla's insurance is driven by the data they collect about your actual driving in real time and your premium updates month to month. Okay. I pay $200 a month for my insurance for my Model S. I was going to have to pay 700 and something with Geico. Jeez. Yeah, okay. Geico. Here, here's my point. What are you paying for your insurance, Zach? Um, it was going to be about 2000 for six months, whatever that is per month. Uh, but uh, I got it down to like 1600 for, so basically 3200 for the year. So, so, I mean, that's over 200 bucks a month, right? You know, that's pretty expensive. The most valuable data, the most valuable data that Tesla collects is the data that they're going to share with municipalities, the data they're going to share with civil engineering companies who manufacture roads, with the civil engineers who set up the stoplights. Tesla is vastly undervalued. Yeah. Tesla's infrastructure condition road. Yeah, Tesla's data infrastructure is going to be able to make um, traffic automation systems more efficient. They can make Google Maps just like overnight. Correct. <laughs> like, you know, the Google, instead of sending a vehicle out to make all the Google Street View, they could just write a code and, and pull that data. Tesla, Tesla is horribly, horribly undervalued. Because if, if you could say 10 years from now, Tesla is going to... Listen, the, listen, the market doesn't exist for most of the data they're collecting right now. Right. But it will. And Rick Bellotta, by the way, who loves to, you know, loves to invest, you know, Rick, I can, I guarantee Rick Bellotta's gears are turning right now. Okay. And he's thinking about all the potential business opportunities that are coming down the road. I guarantee it. Think about, you know, um, all right. Mario Ishigawa, Toyota was the only company not to allow Brazilian engineers to project the flex fuel ethanol gas engine. They have done it in Japan, although ethanol technology is here since the seventies. Mark Ritchie stock 20 or stock to own project projects the moderate value of Tesla at 3406 per share. Current markets, nine thirteen. Tesla could sell data to municipalities for where to put money to fix which potholes. Right. Yeah. Stock that's an easy application. I mean, think about, you know, listen, what should have happened in the last 10 or 15 minutes here. Okay, now let me back up. If Tesla was not didn't have a digital strategy and their digital strategy did not say that they were going to collect all digital data and information, no matter what, even if we have a use for it or not. If that wasn't a function of their digital strategy, then they wouldn't have the business potential that's running through all of your brains right now after hearing that explanation. Right now, everyone's gears are turning. If you're an engineer, your gears are turning. And you're thinking about, holy shit, you're thinking about the real impact. The real impact three three to five years from now, because the market for most of the data that Tesla collects doesn't exist yet. Yeah, Tesla bought. But everyone is moving in the direction. As companies digitally transform, they're all moving in the direction where that data is going to become the most valuable thing that they can subscribe to. All right. Any questions, comment, questions, concerns about that? How do you, how do they monetize that? Let, let's say I'm an engineer at Tesla. How would you do it? I'm an engineer at Tesla. I come up with some new idea that makes the company millions upon millions of dollars profit. You know, it's this new business use case. If you're that engineer at Tesla, how do you, 
you know, monetize. Yeah. yeah how, do, how do you get pa- paid fairly for your contribution towards that mission? Uh, as the individual engineer or for Tesla? Yeah. 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 Like the guy who wrote Google AdWords for Google, he, he ended up making like $5 million a year as an engineer. He was just making a ton of money because that's like one of their main, you know, bread and butter cash cows. So if you, if you come up with a, a use case at Tesla leveraging the infrastructure, you know, that makes a bunch of money, you know, what, what would you do to uh, monetize it? Yeah. Tomas, um, how much money is Tesla making selling data? So the question I would be asking is, why is it we don't know how much money Tesla is making selling data? And the answer is because Elon Musk is a genius. I mean, there's reason he's probably Twitter, probably. There, there's a, there was a really good piece of advice I was given by a mentor of mine. Um, and he told me, he told me one of the most important things you can do in a hyper-competitive environment is to conduct yourself in a way where everyone underestimates you. Like you want to be underestimated, not overestimated, right? Elon Musk goes on, he goes on his, um, you know, quarterly calls. And what did he say in the the last quarterly call? He said- The last one, he focused on insurance a lot and that the bot was bigger than people think. Bot's bigger than FSD. FSD is bigger than model, you know, the bot, the, the car business. Here, here's what, here's what Elon Musk does. He uses his data to generate immense amount of value to get people to copy him. Okay. Um, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't try to change. He doesn't go and try to pitch to other companies how they should operate. What he does is he goes and beats them so that they have to do it the way he knows is optimal. And he happens to he happen, happens to apply optim, optimal to sustainable. I mean, he oper- listen. He's a he's a next generation human being. You know, somebody was joking like uh, I think on one of the videos. Why, why, uh, you know, why why am I so high on Elon Musk? <laughs> and my question isn't. I, I don't try to defend myself. My question is, why are you not? I'm high on the stock. <laughs> No, why are you not? Yeah. There was a great, great... Uh... Oh, quick point, though. Someone asked why we worship Elon. We don't worship Elon Musk. You know, we worship, you know, Jesus. I personally worship Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, as a Christian. But we I. love, you know, we love Elon Musk as a as a brother, you know, so... I, I uh, Elon Musk... But we don't makes, worship him. Elon Musk, Elon Musk helps his strategies, his companies... Um, his philosophies help me serve my mission. And, and, and at the end of the day, that's, but I mean, who else are we going to hold up as the example? I mean, honestly, uh, all right. Te- but remember this, Tesla is a data company. And Elon for those, of you, and for those, of you, I'd love to have Elon on the podcast. We'll get him one day. We will. I promise you. Um, the, um, let me let me say this. Uh, the engineers that are on here, the business development strategists, the business people that are on who listens to our podcast every week, you need to be asking the question, what are we doing to become a digital company? Your employer, the companies you own, what am I doing to become a digital company? What are we doing to become a digital company? And where does that start? Starts with digital strategy. It starts with digital strategy. All right. Any uh uh Andrew, sometimes we release products just to get the data. Yep. Admit uh Vincent Coker. Admittedly, I used to be an Elon hater for my time spent as an automotive integrator, but he's changed my mind as of late. What is needed to in order to really understand the value of data? Um, More data. 
Iosef, that's a what is needed in order to really understand the value. Of data? Are you saying the value of data as a as an abstraction or the value of individual data? Can you just clarify on that? Oh, also, we had another good question that came in um, from I think it was Shannon. He always gets pushed back when he, uh, he says log everything. What would you say to that? Uh, sh um, who do you get pushback from, Shannon? Uh, Tomas, so there is a challenge for new companies to think beyond Tesla and AWS genius, not only copying. Is this realistic? Uh, let's talk about this, actually. It's a good question. What is he asking? Um, there's a challenge for new companies to think beyond Tesla and AWS genius, not only copying. Is this realistic? Okay. A little known fact. Okay. The industrial revolutions are sociological truisms. They are not abstractions created by human beings. If you create, if you create, if there, if human intelligence exists anywhere, or if intelligent beings exist and they civilize, you will go through the, the industrial revolutions. Okay. The written right. word, right. The written word, uh, um, the, the conversion of potential into mechanical energy, right. uh, um, the assembly line, the optimization of manual assembly processes, the electrification, right? Electrification, the automation of, of industrial so the supply chain, the, the train, the train was a huge yeah. instigator of the, um... the automation of business processes, the move into augmented reality and virtual reality into the metaverse, right? What the fifth industrial revolution is going to start in the, you know, 2032, give or take, you know, based on, you know, having the calculations 2032, Augmented reality should be the norm for us. Okay, that is, you, you know, digital overlays, you know, you're, where you're living half in the real world and half in the metaverse. And that's probably going to be through some type of lens or either brain implant. And you're going to you're going to be looking at the physical world and an overlaid on the physical world will be is going to be digital data and information. Those are sociological truisms. They, we didn't create that, okay? The Elon Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, uh, um, you know Peter Thiel, um, um, what's it, uh, Larry Ellison, all of the great tech entrepreneurs understand these are sociological truisms. They've we know you could you can that people have theorized how civilizations advance. They just happen to apply that to business. So. It wasn't Amazon and Tesla that innovated. It was Amazon and Tesla that took the first steps towards the eventuality before anyone else. There's a huge difference here. Huge difference. These are sociological truisms. The, the, if, we, if we were to create a whole new planet, if God were to put human beings on a whole other planet and have us wearing loincloths, we would redo this all over again. The, the first industrial revolution would happen, the second industrial revolution, the third, the fourth, the fifth. They're going to happen in order. Uh, Vincent Coker, hasn't Google, Amazon, and Facebook already proven the value of data? Yes. But let's talk about this real quick. Um, I actually talked about this in a video I shot this morning. Um, not everyone is going to ever understand the real value of data but everyone's going to benefit from the value of data. Not everyone's going to always understand it. Here's something you guys may, may not want to accept, right? Here, in a very short amount of time, 10, 10 to 25 years from now, half the people in, in the Western civilization will not be employable. Today, if you have an IQ of 82 or lower, you are basically not employable. Okay, that's the in the military defines that. I think you're mentally handicapped at 70 or whatever, right? But there are people who have IQs of 82 or lower who are not employable. Over the course of the next 10 to 25 years, 
that number, that floor is going to move up to like 90. So if you have an IQ of 90 or lower, you'll be unemployable. But what if you're, let me like just, what if you're like an entrepreneur or you create some sort of business or you're an entertainer, you're doing TikTok. You're not not doing that. You're not doing that with an IQ of 82. So the top 50, I mean, that's just a simple reality. Maybe I'm, I'm overestimating what that actually is. Yeah. I mean, the average IQ in the West is, you know, a 98, 99, whatever it is. Right. So what's going to happen? Right. There are people who are going to understand the value of data and be able to translate the value of data for humanity. And then there are, mm-hmm. then all of us are just going to benefit from it. Okay. If you have to make the argument to somebody, what's the value of data? Okay. And that's the same person who orders, gets the best price from something on Amazon and gets it delivered to their door within 48 hours or less. That person's an idiot. They're ignorant. It doesn't mean they're stupid. It means they're ignorant. It means they don't have the intelligence to draw the line between that impact on their life and how digital data is what makes that possible. Amazon's not just is not super fast at logistics. Michael Brown can tell you this. They're not they're they haven't mastered the art of logistics. What they did was they used data as a cheat code. Take the human process out of the logistics. To predict the future. They use data to predict the future. To right. 99% accuracy. Yeah, you say this all the time. The human beings not shouldn't be deciding what production run to run on which line, just like a human being's not deciding which order for which you know a new order comes in for Amazon. A human being's not deciding where to ship that from, you know. But most businesses are today. Um, this is a good question, Doug Albright. I've been trying to convince our founder to get a digital strategy but we're still struggling with technical debt from a lack of MRP. Uh, how would you prioritize MRP versus digital transformation? What's MRP? MRP? MRP is a subset of digital transformation. Manufacturing resource planning? Yes. It's a subset of digital transformation. So what you call MRP, we use the, the more uh, IT term of ERP. Right. But um, MRP is a subset of digital transformation. The biggest risk that you run into is that if you're if the owner of your company is a non-technical person, okay, then. Well, MRP could be manufacturing. Well, it could be material requirement planning or manufacturing resource planning. doesn't matter. Both of them are subsets of digital transformation. Um. Um, the, if your owner is a non-technical person, then they run the risk of being sold a bill of goods by someone who is selling a solution that doesn't, well, that may meet specific problems right now, but not be the foundation upon which you'll solve future problems later. And that is a a foundational component of digital transformation. You'll get zero competitive advantages from MRP, but you might need it for compliance. It's not a value creator though. Good comment, Rick. Thanks, Rick. Um, Michael Brown, if you buy something that arrives in two days or sooner, it was predicted up to 120 days ago that you or someone like you would purchase that product from that location. That's crazy. Um, Okay, so here's a question, Vincent Coker. I know we'll get Walker fired up. We're in Allen Bradley Integrator. Is there any hope that Allen Bradley will get on board the IoT train? Yes, there's hope that Rockwell Automation will get on board. There's already... I heard someone say that they're like Ford is pushing them to push MQTT on their hardware. I, I posted that meme the other day and someone yeah. commented. So the answer is yes. Okay. The answer is yes. Here's the problem that you're going to run into with Rockwell. Rockwell has terrible leadership. I mean, um, you know, Rockwell, the leadership at Rockwell is the equivalent of the leadership at Kodak in the late 70s. It's the equivalent of the leadership at Corning Glass in the early 80s. Okay. 
Um, it's the equivalent of the leadership at Smith Corona in the late eighties. Rockwell automation has terrible leadership and people will ask me, how do I know that? Oh, you're, you just, you hate on Rockwell, blah, blah, blah. Listen, I don't hate on Rockwell. I want Rockwell to figure it out. Why? Because we all win if they do, but all you got to do, I mean, listen, if you want to know how Rockwell actually operates, okay, go ahead and you, Rick Ballot, I'm going to answer talking that real quick. All you got to do uh, is go on LinkedIn and, and try to find former executives who worked at Rockwell and then just send them a message. Say, I want to talk to you about, I've done this. I have talked to no fewer than four dozen and it's probably even higher than that former executives at Rockwell. And I've asked them all the same, same five questions. Okay. It's the same thing. Rock, the people at Rockwell are focused on the wrong thing. Okay. They, they still believe they are still committed to owning the stack. They still believe that full vertical integration and let, and their ARP model. Okay. Uh, the ARP model, which is their sales zones. Um, the vertical integration and the connected enterprise and proprietary technology is their path to long-term solvency. I want to talk about Rick Bellotta. Rick Bellotta said Rockwell was down 15% today after quarterly results. Here's a little known fact. Rockwell has been hiding poor performance through M&A for the last five years. Rockwell has been underperforming. It's not hard to tell they're underperforming. I don't know anyone who's converting to Rockwell technology. And I know lots of, I know many, 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 many companies that are moving away. It's the same thing with Aviva. I've never seen anyone rip out Ignition and install Wonderware. I've seen hundreds of companies rip out Wonderware and install Ignition. The same thing is being said. The, the, the Aviva integration, the Aviva Ignition relationship is this in, in software is the same thing we're seeing with Opto 22, Bedrock Automation, Phoenix Contact, you name it. Mm -hmm. I, 10, 15 years ago, I would have never told you that Siemens was a more transformative company than Rockwell. Today, that's absolutely the case. Siemens at least created a whole new business unit to be their transformative arm. Okay, They, they adopted MQTT long before uh, Rockwell Automation did. Rockwell has been hiding losses through mergers and acquisitions for the last five years. Okay. They can't hide it much longer. Yeah. If you want to talk about a stock that's overpriced, it's fucking Rockwell. <laughs> right, um, I want to do a quick shout out. Yeah. All right. Um, we, we did this last week, but uh, uh, Andrew Ott, Annabelle Velardi, and Annabelle Katie Tank. Yeah. Uh, welcome. Thank you for joining the Digital Factory Mastermind Program. And Daniel K and Daniel Y, uh, welcome. Thank you for joining the Industry 4.0 Mentorship Program. Um, welcome. Yeah. Like I said, the 12-week accelerator program just ended, and we're going to be doing another one. So get signed up for the Mastermind Program, and you'll automatically get notified when we do that 12-week. We don't have we don't have the date set yet, but we're going to do it soon because you know it was super valuable for those that went through it and and got one through all of that content. I want to follow up on Iosif. He answered my question. So Iosif Nikolai, he was asking about the value of data. How do you know it? And I, I, he said, the data is valuable when you know how to use it. The question is, how do you teach myself to make the most out of our data, make it very useful for our business? Okay. Right. The answer is this. Digital transformation is, is most successful when you build a dynamic team on common values made up of subject matter experts. You can learn subject matter expertise from other subject matter experts, okay? This is why the mentorship program and the mastermind program exist, is so that we can transfer subject matter expertise to other members of the community. You, What you really want to be able to learn, you want to learn data ops and you want to learn data science, right? That I mean, if you want to really unlock the potential in data, you need to learn data ops and data science. Okay, that's what you got to learn. You got a couple of options. Okay, the best way, in my opinion, to learn is to get the foundational knowledge in data science. Okay, and there are many different courses to do. You can either do that formally at a university or you can do that online. 
But the real thing that you need to start with is the foundational industry 4.0 concepts that are in mentorship and mastermind, whether you take them from us or you take them from somebody else. And then you need, you need a data science in your state, a data scientist in your stable. Okay. You have to have somebody who is formally trained in data science to really unlock the potential. And then you need someone who is a master at data operations. What is data operations? It's taking unlike data and making it like. That's what it is. It's taking, yeah, it's unlike data and modeling it. So it's like data. If you want to really unlock the potential of value, the value in data, you need to know data ops and you need to know data science. But there's no point in doing data ops and data science if you don't first define a digital strategy, create an architecture and start unlocking potential on the plant floor through common technology. And those things are important. They're not not important. They're critical. So anyway, great question. Hopefully that that answers your question, Iosa. Um, all right, everybody. Uh, I did not get to agility and velocity. We will definitely talk about it in um, next week. Did we week. cover the Tesla use case good enough? We did. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I talked about as much as I'm allowed to talk about. <laughs> okay. All right, thank awesome. you, everyone. Yeah, welcome. Appreciate it, everyone. Right. We'll see you guys yeah, next see you guys. Week. See you guys next week. Bye.